Welcome back to the Idiom Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. This week, Morgan Page sat down to chat on the Idiom Podcast. Morgan Page is a multi-Grammy-nominated producer who's been releasing music for over two decades. He's charted multiple Billboard and Beatport number ones, has performed at just about every major festival, and has a weekly radio mix show on SiriusXM. I was excited to have him on the show because very few electronic artists have had the sustained success that he has. Experience is key in the music business, so a new Morgan Page would have valuable insights and advice to share. He signed to his first label back in 1999, so it was interesting to hear what the dance music landscape was like back then and how he, a kid from Vermont, got involved with it. We talk about his first decade as an artist and the experiences that led to his first Grammy nomination. He actually had to convince the label to release a remix of his song The Longest Road from this then-unknown artist by the name of Dead Mouse, a remix that would later go on to be nominated for a Grammy Award. While Morgan Page has had his signature sound for a while, like many, it took him a long time to find it. He traces back the experiences that led to him finding that sound, an invaluable lesson for anyone listening that is anxious to find their own unique style. We also discuss how he's developed that sound over the past decade, keeping true to it while staying both modern and relevant. We cover a lot of ground on the production side, talking about his default production templates, how to write instrumentals for singers, and how to maintain excitement on a track that you've been working on for a while. Morgan Page also breaks down his drafted day workflow, which helps him stay productive in the limited creative time that he has. We also dive into his favorite music tools and technology, his love for education and his quick tip series, as well as writing music for SpaceX. Later on, Morgan Page talks about how the music industry has shifted over the past decade and whether or not he thinks it's easier than before to break out as an artist. So one last thing, Morgan Page just released a remix package for his track Footprints featuring Haley Ann, which is out now on Armada Music. I'll leave a link to this remix package in the description below this interview. There's four juicy remixes that you should all definitely check out right after this episode is over. With that, let's wrap things up. Here's the EDM Podcast with Morgan Page. Welcome back to the Edium Podcast. Today, I'm joined by producer Morgan Page. Morgan, how are you doing today? Doing good. Glad to be here. Of course. Stoked to have you here. So first off, I'd love to learn a bit more about your background in music. There's a lot that we can get into, but start by talking about what initially got you excited and interested in producing music. I think the first thing was seeing how computers could talk to instruments and how the computer itself could be an instrument. So in, in middle school, I remember seeing a demo in the auditorium of my school where I grew up in Vermont and and seeing MIDI in action for the first time. So I think becoming fascinated by synths, but also yeah. MIDI as a, a way to communicate. And that was also at the time that, um, you know, a lot of the internet stuff was just getting going. So mm-hmm. it was, you know, computers talking to each other seemed like such a, a foreign concept at the time, but computers talking to instruments was also really exciting and interesting. So I think that kickstarted this lifelong passion uh, of music and technology and and how they both reinforce each other. So when did you first, or what was your first software that you started using when you were getting into production? I started with this really obscure stuff, uh, tracking software. So it was a thing called yeah. Scream Tracker. And I know Deadmau5 got started with that. More people than I realized uh, that were similar to my age got into music that way. And it was free software. I think it was shareware. And it was on PC. That was before I was a Mac head. And it was using 8-bit samples. And it was cool because you could do remix contests uh, with these really tiny sample packs. So you had these little micro samples because computers weren't powerful enough and Pro Tools was out of reach, wasn't affordable. So there's a lot of these barriers to entry. So this was the first way to do it. And there was this whole underground music scene of internet music. I mean, before the internet was powerful enough to really have the bandwidth for streaming, uh, you had these projects being shared and it was kind of yeah. for like on Amiga or in Commodore computers. It was really early computers. And I remember I even had a Tandy, a Radio Shack computer that I first started on. Yeah. So, you know, it was at the time, everything was so expensive. Uh, and eventually I was able to save up and, and buy uh, an MPC 2000 and get some real hardware samplers, but they were so expensive. Yeah. And, you know, now they're like doorstops. 
but um, that was the that was the start of the bug and getting started with that software. Um, I think even there was like kick drum plug. They weren't really plugins, but they were standalone apps for creating kick drums. Okay. Uh, but it was very early days. It was hard to make a big sound back then. You had to. It took a lot more work to create. Um, because I didn't even really have compressors to work with. There was no real mastering. It was all uh, almost like a player piano of punching in these notes. Yeah. Did you have anyone around you at that time in person that was also interested in production or at least electronic music? I was kind of a lone ranger. Like I, I grew up in Vermont. I wasn't even the, in the suburbs. It was right on the edge of the country with the farms and the suburbs. And I grew up in this area where we had hundreds of acres of land around. And the the emphasis was my, my parents were like, you know, get outside and explore. I was an only child, so I had a little more time on my hands. Yeah. And, you know, once I got the bug for computers, it was really all on me. And then I think eventually friends of mine wanted to make hip hop and that got me to buy the MPC and get into that, just a beat focused type of production. But um, just listening to old, you know, like Trap Called Quest and Gangstar, yeah. listening to these records and trying to imitate them. Um, but that, you know, it started with hip hop and then that transitioned into a love for electronic music, but it was mainly me. And the only reason I got into the electronic stuff was because, you know, there was no blogs, there was no MP3s at the time. The only reason I got into it was college radio. Uh, so okay. that signal, that signal from the university of Vermont just crept out into the country. And I've just remember hearing these mix shows and going, what is the stuff? It's not on any of the commercial stations. And if it was on a commercial station, it was on at the graveyard shift at 4 a.m. Mm -hmm. So you had very limited access to the stuff. It almost, it, if it wasn't on the, the college radio, it didn't exist in any other form to yeah. my ears, unless you were going clubbing in the city. So that's how I got started. So was that really your only um, introduction into electro electronic music at that point? Cause that was kind of like mid to late nineties. And I, can't imagine yeah. that there was the biggest electronic music community online. So is that how you were finding about different music? Yeah. And, you know, it was big in the cities. Like I would go down to New York and I remember my parents dropping me off to raves in New York City, like in uh, the meatpacking district. And yeah. it was, they were kind of concerned. They thought it was a drug scene <laughs> and they weren't sure, yeah. like, you know, dropping some kid off from Vermont, <laughs> Yeah, what was going on. <laughs> um, but I think it it really is important to move to the city to find those like-minded people. And, uh, you know, I started doing a lot with radio. Radio led to doing internships in the city and spending my summers in, in New York. And if you can survive that city, you can survive anywhere. Um, so mm -hmm. it was a matter of finding more like-minded people. And I was really excited to kind of dust off my country roots and go to the big city where yeah. real clubs were. And even though Burlington did have a scene, they had a couple great weekly nights that were cool. And that's where DJs would go to play between Boston and Montreal. That was like their pit stop. Yeah. Uh, so I remember seeing guys like DJ shadow play in tiny mm -hmm. little 200 cap clubs sometimes. That's awesome. Yeah. So did you, what did you end up going to college for? Uh, marketing. I did marketing and psychology. So that was my minor. And it was kind of, I don't know, college was really good. It was an expensive introduction to everything. And I yeah. I really liked it. I went to Emerson in Boston. Yeah. Um, and what drew me there was the tour. On the tour, there's like this trophy piece, and that is the radio station. They had this multi-million dollar radio station. Yeah. It was student run. It was There was some oversight from adults that were kind of the grown-ups running it as well. But it was mainly student run. And that, I just knew immediately. I had this gut feeling like, I got to go and work for the station and get involved. And that led to later managing the station and helping to run the electronic show, the weekly show, and also creating the website for the station. So kind of a jack of all trades, uh, not a real web designer, more of a, you know, using Dreamweaver and yeah. cutting things up and pretending to be a web designer. But but it was a good start to get get my foot in the door. What initially drew you into radio? I think it was just, I thought it was so cool that it was invisible and that hmm. you could hear all this music. No one was telling you what to play. I mean, at college radio, you have to play with something like 25% new music. And that was the only thing. But uh, hearing these shows and just being fascinated by like, where was this music coming from? Yeah. Uh, you know, I first got into the more accessible mainstream stream stuff like Crystal Method and Prodigy. And then that led to much more underground, like German tech house and yeah. more obscure things and really getting to the underbelly of the scene. So 
at the time, people had no idea. I remember in high school, everyone thought it was so bizarre. Like they thought electronic music was for tweakers. And yeah. I, I was just kind of, you know, marching to the beat of my own drummer. And I remember actually faxing over charts to labels in London and in high school. And kids are like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. So, you know, I, I had to put in those early hours then. I didn't party as much as everyone else, but it was it was a time where I just I just dug my heels in and I filled in for a radio slot that people weren't even showing up to their own slots. Like there was dead air. So I would drive in when I'd hear dead air. I'd fill yeah. in for slots that people kind of lost the hunger to do their their show with. And that's always when the opportunity strikes, when uh, somebody gets a little complacent with their what they have available. What got you so excited about music at that point? And like, it seems like you were very serious about music and radio at that point. Were you thinking about it in terms of a career or was it just something that you were excited about and wanted to be a part of? I, I never thought of radio as a career. I never thought of DJing as a viable career. Um, you know, I never imagined it. I never thought it would be something where you could make a living. I just knew that it was uh, something fun and just you could feel it in my blood. I was just like, I could feel it, this electricity yeah. Uh, for making music. Uh, ever since I touched a synth, I think it was like a Korg M1 and just trying to imitate what was on the, you know, on the radio, what I would hear at the club, trying to recreate that. I mean, I would send in demos on cassette to these radio stations and they would play them. I remember my first record that I signed was on Minidisc and made the transfer that to DAT. Uh, <laughs> so just kind of bootstrapping my way through. But yeah, I think if you, if you look back to a certain age, you know what excites you. You know, you try a lot of things and you see what really jumps out at you. And this was one of those things where I got the bug and it never left. Yeah. Do you feel like part of the reason that you didn't necessarily think about it as a career was because there weren't as many prevalent figures that were making a living off of electronic, making a living off of electronic music as there is now? Yeah. It seemed very far off from uh, the hills of Vermont. You know, I remember yeah. <laughs> seeing, I remember this label Moonshine Music was doing all these DJ compilations and there's guys like DJ Kiyoki and these, I don't know what he's doing now, but they, that seems so crazy to me that they have these mix CDs and they're in every store across the country. They had amazing distribution. Yeah. That was back when DJ mixes really sold well and it was a profitable thing. But I just was thinking like, this is insane. These guys are getting paid to DJ. They're being flown around the world. Like this seems insane. Like how is this even a real career? So it yeah. seemed very, very far off. Um, you know, I think the, the romance can wear off sometimes if, uh, you know, if you're doing a really grueling tour and it's crazy, but I think every night I'm DJing, I never take it for granted. I, I look back and I think about those Vermont days and I go, wow, I can't yeah. believe I'm still able to do this. And it's like a privilege to be able to, to be paid to DJ and make yeah. music. So when did that switch flip for you where you thought, Hey, this could be something that I could think about doing for a career? Well, I think it was it was really tricky when in college I would send out demo tapes and I've get a lot of rejection letters from labels and I definitely at that time I was like wow this is this is going nowhere but I love to make the songs and I was very naive and I think you have to be naive yeah to to do it if I knew all the tricky complicated things that would come up later in careers in music I probably wouldn't have gotten into it you mm -hmm. I would like that would psych me out so you have to be naive and probably think that your music is better than it is. Yeah. Uh, so I just, <laughs> I think true. I got like one, one rejection letter, but it's funny. Almost everybody that rejected the stuff I later on became friends with and they, they moved to other labels and they helped me with other aspects of my career later on. But it's a really tricky career. It's not, definitely not a linear path. Uh, I never got to be part of the cliques of DJs in Boston or Vermont. Yeah. I wasn't really accepted into those. They were very territorial. So I never was the resident DJ working my way up, you know, through the mailroom, so to speak. So it was more like a lateral move where I I made the best music I could. I worked really hard in these internships to try to be, and even those are competitive to, to work for yeah. free. Uh, so, you know, I did my best with those and people took a chance on me and I was able to kind of, you know, snowball that into doing more releases, more remixes and just having that, just being naive enough to think that the stuff is amazing. Like, why aren't they signing it? Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, when did it become a viable, what didn't it look like a viable career? I think when I started doing, getting a lot of remix requests. Okay. So that took a long time. Eventually I, somebody approached me 
And he wanted to be my remix agent. Actually, it was Bill Coleman at Peace Biscuit. And he said, you know, let's take you on. Let's do some spec remixes. And spec remixes suck because that's how yeah. major major labels kind of want to take advantage of remixers. And uh, it, it's an annoying process. Like they, you know, they, they'll have 20 guys do spec mixes and then pay three of them and yeah. just throw away the rest. Uh, but it was a really good way of sort of going to boot camp. So I did a bunch of remixes through an agent and... You know, that led to remixes for Madonna. And I think as soon as you start seeing big names and you're you're making decent money off the fees, that was like, oh, wow, this I can crank these out. I can do a remix in three or four days and I don't have to write the lyrics or, yep. you know, I make I come up with some little sub hooks and things. But uh, I think it looked viable then. I did a, a remix compilation that was sort of a white, la- white label bootleg album called Cease and Desist. Okay. And that led to more remix work. So I think what you see in your career is a bunch of streams of revenue open up and like the remix world was a big one for a while. Then that kind of dries up and the industry changes because the remixes aren't as profitable. It's more of a marketing tool for labels. And then originals become profitable and then it's always changing and it's always very fluid. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, remixes were the first indicator of like, I think I'm onto something. One thing, um, one of my old production partners was kind of in that same scene, like mid two thousands, a lot of bigger artists asking for remixes. And there was also pretty good money in it too, from what he was telling me, just because remixes weren't as much of a, I don't know, like they were more of a rarity then to get like great pop radio friendly remixes, as opposed to now where thousands of artists do it for free. Anytime there's a new chain smoker song out. Yeah. Yeah. And now, and now it's funny. Cause also a lot of guys want to focus on originals. So people are a little more precious with their spending their energy on. Uh, so like now I'll hire more emerging names to do remixes rather yeah. than like going for big names. Cause a lot of the big names just, unless they're in love with the track or mm-hmm. unless it's for Rihanna, they don't really want to do it. Uh, but so now I think it's, it's really valuable, but it's harder to get remixes on playlists as much as originals for some reason. So yeah. it's hard to do. I like big remix packs, but, um, you can kind of shoot yourself in the foot with too many with splitting up the play counts and a bunch won't get enough plays. There'll be one standout, Yeah, but you never know who's going to knock it out of the park and really deliver. Like when I hired dead mouse to remix longest road, I remember the label was like, ah, oh, it's pretty good, but I don't know. I don't know about this. Like this, I don't know yeah. if we want to pay this fee. And <laughs> I, I had to fight for that. They, they didn't want the mix. And I said, we have to get this guy. Like, I know he's on this arc. This is before the mouse head. Yeah. Uh, and you just gotta, you gotta push for what you want. Would you say as you were sliding over into originals, there was kind of like a breakthrough track that you have looking back? Yeah, definitely longest road. And, and, you know, there were, there were others that did well, but I thought it was going to click sooner than it did. Um, I had to transition through day jobs and I was brewing coffee at midnight. I was working two nine to fives Yeah, and it was, it was a, a long process. It was not this overnight sensation. And I call it a, like a 10 year overnight success. <laughs> so I guess it took when, about 10 years. When did you go full time then? Full time. Oh man. That's a good question. I think it was around 2008. Okay. Yeah, longest road. Yes. Full time for touring. Yeah. 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 2008 was when things took off and, you know, Dead Mouse stripped down longest road to its essential parts. And, and you kind of have these these ten poles of, of of hit songs, and it is harder to get those breakout hits. But uh, longest road, and then in the air, and it gets a little more fractured as you know more and more music is coming out. Like I think now it's forty thousand songs a day are out on Spotify, <laughs> so it's a little harder to stand out. But yeah. uh, but I think you know you you keep putting out um, your best music, and you you cater to your fans, and and uh, you just you just have more of a stream of music rather than waiting for an album to, to take form. Where does the longest road sit with you right now after it's been out for about 11 years? Do you still view it in the same way? Has there been a time where you haven't been as stoked on it? Like you wish you could push beyond that. I feel like it's always interesting to hear that because I think as fans, we don't think about songs as being, I don't know, like dated or like we don't um, have that kind of distance. Like sometimes artists will with the song that they blow up on. So I'm curious to kind of hear where you sit with that. Yeah, it's it's weird because I've played it for every show in the last, you know, since 2008. So it's a part of my b- being, basically. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, it's 
like I'm not sick of it because we keep I keep dressing it up in new mashups and new remixes. That's been my little key to keeping things fresh and interesting and yeah. sometimes it pisses off fans like some people are like you didn't play longest road i'm like no i played two versions of it actually yeah <laughs> that that drives me nuts like it, it is funny that I, I get it though people are used to hearing certain instrumentation and they want to hear the original mix of in the air but i'm like that's not going to work in my set so yeah the the key thing is i think it was really worth Putting in the time, like I put a lot of work into making that acapella really good and stacking the harmonies and stacking the whisper takes in a way that made the record. I wanted to make it timeless. And and sometimes you can do that with good engineering and good technique, um, even beyond the form of the song and the lyrics, which, you know, I was very hands-on with. Uh, I worked very closely with the singer. You know, some guys just, just sort of plug in a top line and plug in a splice pack and and I've done that too yeah. for some tracks, but but I like to be a little more hands-on. I recorded that vocal in my bedroom where you flip the mattress up and had a $200 mic. And, you know, it yeah. doesn't mean you're going to have a better version if you have this, a super fancy studio and a, and a $3,000 mic. So I want to go back to something that you said where that was intentional. You were trying to make it more of like a timeless record. Has that been a goal with you kind of over the arc of your career? Because I know more so at the start, like the very beginnings, it was more kind of like an underground style that you were doing. When did that kind of switch into more of the like progressive pop direction that you've had for the past decade? It happens. I did this sort of underground record for uh, Nordic Tracks, this Vancouver label, yeah. 2000, early 2000s. And that was really mellow, deep tech house. And then there was one song with Colette that was a vocal track. Uh, I think it was all I need. And I just, I felt like the song is way more durable with a vocal and it's going to last longer and it can be remixed better. It's harder to remix instrumentals. So I did that. And then I did a song with Astrid Surianto for Saw Records for Satoshi Tomi's label. And that was vocal with acoustic guitar. And I'm like, well, I really like this songwriter vibe. Like I really like the concept of taking a singer from a a non-dance focused genre and bringing that into dance, taking a singer out of their comfort zone. And I still, I want to get back to a little more of that. That's, that's really, I think a valuable thing. It's this, this magic that happens uh, right on the border between two different genres, yeah. like this transition zone. So I think that's where you get real original music and it's stuff that'll stick out. I, my problem with a lot of vocals now is they just sound too saccharine sweet and I can't tell the vocalist apart. Yeah. Um, so, and maybe there's ways to, there's ways you can process vocals to kind of add some more grit, but it's harder. It's better to just get a vocalist with that who can deliver performance. Like you look at like, tones and I, she has such a bizarre voice. Like it may not be the best thing for my productions, but I love that. It's so different yeah. that you have to Shazam it and you go, who the hell is this? Even if you don't like it, it's just so different. It doesn't sound like, another pop record. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, I think it's, it's a really important thing these days because I heard a quote, it's like a Tony Bennett quote. Like if, if every singer sounds the same, you just become part of the chorus. So I like that, uh, you know, like it's just, you're just stacking different clones of a vocalist and it's great for backgrounds, but, but, um, if you want your song to stick with people, it's gotta, it's gotta jump out at them in some way. I think part of that is driven by just kind of the top line market around a lot of the big electronic acts right now where they totally, just have yeah. these pre-recorded top lines with the same 15, 20, 30 artists that just kind of get shuffled around in different formats and all of them just kind of start to mirror each other because a lot of the people that are doing yeah. those kind of top lines are ones that are aspiring to be the next Rihanna, Beyonce, whatever. And then they end up sounding like all those people at the top and then there's less distinction. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, they're singing the scale the certain same way there. It's, it's even beyond the timbre of their voice, which is very similar. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's being, it's being engineered the same way with the producer or whatever, but uh, yeah, it's, it's so interesting. It's become kind of a meat market for top lines. And, you know, some people yeah. send me stuff that's, that's, that are splice vocals and they pretend like it's theirs. <laughs> and I go, yeah. and then later on they go, I go, Oh, like we're, who's the vocalist? And they're like, Carl. I don't know. Like, do you have a lyric sheet? They're like, no, no. Yeah. Carl. yeah. <laughs> and there's always like, uh, it's always this interesting game of see how many hidden writers there are on the track or if it's a hidden splice sample. Yeah. Um, 
I forgot where I saw it, but there's like a Jay-Z quote, somebody who Jay-Z I think was kind of brought in because of his distinct voice. He talked about that with Anderson Pac, who's blown up in the past two years. And he's like, I need to be able to hear somebody's voice until it's them. And Anderson Pac is a very distinct voice alongside a lot of other things that he does. Um, yeah, and I think it's kind of like a similar thing to what we've been talking about, like having something unique on top, not just a vocal. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they should I look at it as another instrument, you know, yeah. and if everyone's using the same plugin, you know, it might and the same presets, they're going to get similar results. Yeah. Cool. So let's kind of slide over a bit into production. One thing that I want to ask you is what do you feel like on the production side of things is the biggest thing that you struggle with right now? I think it's hearing a song too many times. Uh, and that really is, it's about staying objective and being able to get beyond that moment of, you know, I'm chasing goosebumps and eventually goosebumps wear out uh, after you've heard the song too many times. So you've got to stay excited about the track, stay objective, be able to finish it. It's still really hard to finish songs. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely embracing collaboration, bringing in a lot of other co-producers because uh, they can, you can kind of tag team it and have somebody finish the last 20%, last 10%. Um, but it is funny. It's, I think the hard thing is to be consistent. Like there's songs where I'm like, wow, that mix down's really good. And there's others that, that aren't up to par. I'm never totally, totally happy. Yeah. I have other people do stem mixing for me and final masters. And sometimes I love what they do. And sometimes I can't, I'm like, wow, I could do better. Yeah. So it's this weird juggling act of what do you want to focus on? Do you want to, you want to spend all your energy on the top line and just grinding out those vocals so that they they line up with the syllables for the mumble of the melody you yeah. had, or do you want to do you want to really focus on getting that getting it loud and you know yeah. which is becoming a little less relevant now with the streaming, mm -hmm. but it's still going to be loud for the club. Uh, yeah, it's like where do you want to spend your time with it? Uh, so I I really think it's important to be good at all phases of production and like now. A lot of top lines I'll get in, I'll be like, wow, these these metaphors are really cheesy. And I want to be good enough to go in, kick the tires and say, here's your key phrase. Here's your tag. This is the hook. Uh, take out that junk. Take out those easy rhymes yeah. and take these cliches out because they're worn smooth. They've been used too many times. There's too many easy yeah. rhymes. That's usually the biggest problem. That's why you're cringing and you heard Ugh. something too many times or it just passes you by. Like trying to find a acapella on Splice that you like. I feel like half the time the tone's good, but just some of those cheesy ass rhymes, which is like the same 10 recycled cliches and idioms that everyone uses. Yeah. And then and then it's the same, they rhyme it with the same word. So I, I think the the I try to get people to do more conversational lyrics than than the metaphor metaphor is amazing if you get it right, but it's so hard. Yeah. But then the problem also with conversational lyrics is that it can become too common and it can be, it, it, how many different ways can you say uh, the same phrase, say I love you in a track or express the same thing? You have to find new ways to express something without it becoming wallpaper. Yeah. So going back to something you said earlier, you said that you struggle to maintain excitement on a track. Do you feel like there are any processes that you go through and kind of make sure that you do to make sure that you're still excited about tracks that you're working on? Cause I feel like a lot of producers do struggle with this. So I was just wondering if there's anything that you fall back on for that. What do I do? I usually, I mean, usually it's just a matter of breaking it down. So you have some outside ears on it and somebody throws in a stem and you, you're, you're excited about the track again, or like some, I work with some of the producers that are better at drops and I'm better at breakdowns and chord voicings, yeah. things like that. So I think when I, Find somebody that has a complementary skill set uh, that keeps me excited. Um, one really thing, one thing I love to do is soloing different combinations of tracks in the session, yeah. and muting muting different tracks, and then you hear it in a different light. You know, you've got too many layers, yeah. so you know it becomes about what can you reduce out of the equation and what can you pare down. Um, what else is interesting? I think to stay excited too, I, I like to get into instruments that are beyond my comfort zone, like I've doing a lot of stuff with guitar lately. I'm, I'm much more of a piano yeah. player. That's my background is more, I've had piano lessons for a while. And with guitar, I'm, I'm so bad <laughs> at it, but it's, I come up with, with really different melodies, you know, and the, the shapes of chords yeah. and the, the shapes of the melodies are, are very different. So I've been getting better at that and sort of just doing everything by ear. And I don't even know what chords I'm playing sometimes, but it's really helped me to create 
new hooks and things I would have never stumbled upon just because of the dynamics of your sliding notes over the frets yeah. and maybe you're playing with a glass slide. Maybe you're, your palm muting the mm. hook. Uh, it's, it's a very easy way to get a dynamic sound. Um, whereas piano, you, know, you can't really do vibrato with piano yeah. like you can do on a guitar. So it's a different expressiveness. Uh, that's a really good technique. And then, you know, I think still the biggest thing is, you know, I like to get excited about technique in the studio. It sounds very nerdy, but yeah. I like to be like, all right, I'm going to really nail this this side multi-band side chain plugin like uh shaper box, yeah. which is incredible. Like that plugin alone can give you, you know, a hundred new songs just based on how you interact these different modules with the filter and the side chain and things like that. So I might spend a day focusing on one technique. Uh recently I I really got into tape stuff, tape yeah. emulation. And in the, in the past I thought, oh, it's subtle and it's boring. And and I got into if you use it on the right source material on drums and on bass, it can totally make yeah. a track. And I just went through all the UAD tape plugins so much. and really learned them inside and out. Yeah. Tape delay, like got behind the hood, started tweaking the, the, the wobble and the flux in there. And there's so much you can do with those overdriving mm -hmm. the input, bringing the output down. Um, so I think if I, if I'm focused on, on tasks like that, I can do a good job, but it's very easy to get lost down the rabbit hole with stuff. So I kind of zoom in and then learn when to zoom yeah, out. I think that's a critical point. Always making sure there's new things that are exciting you with production. I think a lot of producers get to a certain point where they're comfortable with their workflow and then they stop reinventing it and then they run into a brick wall. Surprise. So it's important on a production side yeah. to always have new things that you're interested in. Like I think I don't know, like when other artists are asked this, oftentimes it's just like a new sample pack or plugin that inspired like a new EP that they did. It might seem simple, but as long as you're introducing new things to your workflow arsenal, you're going to push through those kind of barriers that a lot of producers run into when they've been around for a few years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and it is a challenge having produced for so long, you know, now it's, it's easier to get a bigger sound. The bar has been raised on sound quality and loudness and the impact and the shape of sounds are just much louder, yeah. uh, you know, versus like back in the day where I didn't even have, it wasn't even side chaining stuff. It was just all EQ and having less stuff going on in the mix. Yeah. Uh, you know, it used to be much simpler and it was kind of nice to run things through a board, but now it's become very technical, at least in terms of a big room EDM. Uh, you know, it's like guys are side chaining their top kick to their, <laughs> to their mid kick yeah. and to like doing like waterfall cascades, side chaining and doing mid side. And it's gets so technical where it's almost like if you just pick better samples, you could save a lot yeah. of steps. So I, I think that is really important though. That is one of the quick tips I put together was like that most writer's block stems from an incomplete palette. So if, if you don't have the palette, it's just like writing a book, you know, you've got to d get into that research phase and assemble all the raw components and curate these these materials, same with cooking too. It's like, you got to have those materials, yeah. get the, get the right ingredients together and then figure out how to combine things mm -hmm. in, in novel ways. Cause nothing's really new. You know, we're all doing the same versions of chord progressions. Um, a lot of people are using the same synth, same sample packs. So it's like, not so much, what are you using, but how are you combining it differently? And how are you sort of, how do you, how are you riffing on something that's already been done? Yeah. So, cause it's gotta be familiar enough. It's a know? weird balance. I think you need to grow beyond and use all of the awesome tools that you have at your disposal in terms of pre-processed drums, pre-processed um, vocals and synths presets, like anything that you could possibly want, how you're using that as a tool for creativity. And I think that's something that far too many yeah. beginner and intermediate producers forget is they can just you can make a dope sounding hip hop beat if you just go on Splice and download whatever, like the Sony drum kit, but there's nothing that you're really doing if you're just using those sounds to be creative on top of that, to have something unique and a unique perspective that you can share with people. So I think kind of like what you're going with, it's yeah. critical that you're taking all the awesome tools that you have riffing on that in a unique way to offer something new, because that's the only way that you're going to cut through. Yeah. It's like, there's got to be a class in cross-pollinating the sounds and, and finding ways. I mean, it really is the, your taste is the common thread that's weaving together yeah. all these, these assets together. So I think that's a whole skill in itself. I mean, the hard thing now that I'm seeing is, you know, when I've done music for Tesla and SpaceX, it's a really cool project, but now they, it's almost easier for them to just go to stock production libraries that are getting really yeah. good. Uh, I mean, there's some incredible music bed sites. It's not like it used to be, they used to tell me like, oh, we're so tired of these, uh, you know, same royalty free sites. But now 
it's become enough of a cottage industry that you have really good producers making these beds and just churning them out, like doing a couple a day, five a day. And, and the stuff sounds good. Yeah. (laughs) So, so I'm almost like, wow, it's like these side projects are fun, but it's still the most important thing is to make original stuff and don't make it for somebody else, make it for yourself. And then hopefully everyone everyone else likes your music just as much as you do. So I want to go back to some of those side projects in a moment, but I'm going to go back to something earlier, which was your quick tip series. So for people that aren't familiar with it, talk about what your quick tips is. Well, these tips started out as tweets and a friend of mine that was doing artist relations for Pioneer DJ way back, he said, I don't know how it started, but he was saying, I think I was doing a couple tweets here and there about just ways to improve your production, things that I'd learned along the way. And he's like, why don't you do these regularly? Why don't you make them bite-sized tips that uh, you know, producers can use, kind of make it a resource. And I kind of took that idea and ran with it. These were tips were small enough to be, to fit into a text message or a yeah. tweet. You know, they fit back when Twitter was only 140 characters. So could you condense and compress knowledge into bite-sized nuggets in a meaningful way, not a trite way? Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of lame <laughs> tips out there on on the creative yeah. process. There's it, by people that are not like creating real work. And it's, I don't know, it's, I'm suspicious yeah. of those and not, and it's funny cause you don't know which tips are going to work for, for each person. Every tip is like a key in this pile of keys and you never know what's going to unlock which door, but I want them. Everything is, uh, some tips are philosophy. Some tips are very technical. Some are about maintenance. Yeah. Some are about the muse and workflow. So it's a very holistic whole systems approach yeah. to it. And it's not just about how to create a fat, fat kick drum because there's a million tutorials yeah. about that. So this is like, this to me are all the, it's all the essential components to have a sustainable career, uh, an exciting career that lasts. And it's very easy to have one hit record and then fizzle out, but can you create a sustainable living and still love it and, and just remain passionate about it. And these tips are little reminders. They're little creative dilemmas that can keep you going. They're kind of the grease for the gears that that keep the machine going because they're not going to be the gears for you. You've got to do the hard work, but the grease is just going to add some fluidity to the process and, and reduce some of the friction and some of the frustration that you have as a creative person. You do a lot on the education side outside of the quick tips. You've done um, like I did a masterclass with Pyramine, JBL, you had like a wave series that you did. Where does that desire to teach and give back come from for you? I think just seeing, seeing where I've struggled with stuff and wishing I had a mentor or somebody to guide me along in that process. Uh, definitely that's one source of it. I think the other, originally it was just selfishly. I wanted to have these tips for myself so I wouldn't forget. Um, yeah. uh, my memory is just, I just live in the present and, I forget a lot and your brain is just not a good capture device. So I wanted to store these and build a knowledge base, build a resource. And then I thought, well, why, why not share these? So now it's, there's over 800 tips. There's five a day randomly scheduled yeah. on Twitter. Um, and it's a, it's a way of giving back, you know, cause it doesn't really take that much time to write these down. It's just a matter of being organized. Yeah. Uh, and maybe it'll be a book, but right now it's a, it's a card deck. Uh, there's 24, I think there's 24 cards in the deck right now that we have out. So it's a physical mm-hmm. card deck. And that was partially inspired by Brian Eno's yep. oblique strategies. Uh, I love those, but I wanted something a little more visual, a little more actionable. Uh, and I know, I think Rick Rubin is working on something as well. He does his tips on Instagram that he, he makes them very uh, ephemeral. They disappear every day, but I, I'm, I'm guessing he's coming out with a book or a card deck. That's my feeling. So you mentioned that um, you didn't really have any mentors growing up and now you're looking to give back more. The question that I wanted to ask you is I'm sure over the past you know decade or two of your career, you've started to give back more directly with some people, mentored some artists that came to you among the thousands that I'm sure have reached out to you over the course of your career. Do you, has there been any consistencies in the artists that you do give a little bit extra to, to support them? I would say, at least in my work with Edium Prod, there have been a few different students that I've really been drawn to and given a lot more because I responded to them in a certain way. Has there been anyone like that in your career? I think it's right now, there's more that I should be doing to mentor people one-on-one. I think that might be, that will probably be more of a stage coming up. It's been more of an, in a group setting, doing the guest lectures, doing the tips. Uh, yeah. 
but time wise, I don't know. I have a, I have a baby now. So that's like, I, my, my time frame is totally changed, but I want to, it is interesting yeah. because I've talked to artists that have become huge successes and they've given me demo, uh, like USB demos on, on sticks and like loud luxury. I remember they gave me a demo, their demos like years yeah. ago before the productions were probably even there. And they were, they thought it was so funny that, I mean, I don't know if I ever listened to it, but it was, I've had a couple artists. Oh, Zoo gave me an early demo before he was Zoo when he was just a local DJ. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of kicking myself for not being a little more proactive about <laughs> listening to those. <laughs> but um, yeah, it'd be really nice to do a label eventually someday. But it's so much work to just be one artist and collaborate. And, you know, the Morgan Page brand is really, it's a collection of collaborations, a collection of work with singers. I've probably worked with 40 or 50 different singers, probably a dozen, two dozen different producers. Um, it's a very collaborative effort. And, and maybe there's some men yeah. mentorship with some of the younger producers in that process. Like I do a lot with Steve James. He's super talented. Um, and, yeah. you know, I think it, it's, it's important to keep your sound fresh and, you know, recultivate your instincts. And part of that is working with, with younger producers, upcoming producers that, uh, they may challenge your style and kind of kick the tires in, in important ways. So I know that you do a lot outside of just the Morgan page project. You mentioned, um, doing music for Tesla earlier. I think the story behind how you got connected with, with that project is really cool. So talk a bit about that and what you do for them. Yeah, it's kind of a blur, but you know, I, I was charging my car, uh, at the design center in Hawthorne, where the, the Tesla center is also SpaceX. And I got out of my car and Elon Musk is standing there with Franz, the designer, also the designer of the Cybertruck. And they were both looking at their car. And, and, and I think they were like looking at the bumper or something and talking about design stuff. And I introduced myself to Elon and he had said something like, oh, I just heard in the air on satellite radio in the car. And he's, he's an EDM <laughs> fan. And but even prior to that, I when I called the company, this is really early. Like, like I have number 1,000, the Model S number 1,000. First person I talked to on the phone yeah. at Tesla was a fan. And everyone at the company was just a big electronic music fan. And I started building these friendships over the course of five years. Uh, I started giving them R&D feedback on the car. Like, hey, you, know, you got to improve the sound system. Uh, the seats yeah. the seats need this. And, and I remember Elon... Uh, actually sent an email. I sent this email of like my top favorite things about the S and he sent it to the whole company. Uh, it was funny to see that. <laughs> so it's funny because it was yeah. a much smaller company then. And now it's, oh man, I think it's like 10,000 people. It's really big now. I, I barely recognize anyone there, but started building yeah. a relationship and the, the family's really cool. I'll DJ for them occasionally. And they're just awesome. They're, they're very forward thinking. They inspire me to be more ambitious. I feel like whenever I'm, I've hung out with any of the Musks, I, I feel like I'm floating and I feel like I have to create something even bigger and more exciting. So it's fun to do that. And it was fun. I mean, SpaceX, yeah. um, I've, I've only worked on a couple of projects for them, but that was just awesome. Making music for rockets and, and changing my comfort zone, really pushing that and working a little more orchestral, a little more score focused, uh, but still yeah. keeping it a little electronic. So kind of in the space of doing things outside of your project that keep you excited, is there anything in the music, music tech space that has been inspiring you and motivating you recently? I'm definitely a big fan of what UAD is doing, what Universal Audio is doing with the the new Apollos. Um, yeah. Speaking of space, the I have the <laughs> X8Ps and I just love this workflow of that you've got uh, the, the Unity plugins or unison plugins where you can just really track yeah. everything. And I have the hardware, the originals of some of this stuff, and it's, it's kind of collecting dust. I love the originals, but to have that power to track things and to be able to play all my synths, like I have a, a mixing board that's always on is really nice. Um, yeah. I just think the software's come so far now. Uh, I, I love, yeah. I love all the stuff cable guys are doing like Shaperbox, like I was saying mm -hmm. earlier is, an incredible tool for side chaining and just having more flexibility. I like it even more than LFO tool just for really dialing in the shapes of the, you know, doing a little slower pump on the side chain for the lows, a, a little bit quicker for the mids, a little bit quicker for the highs. Um, yeah. Really having that control over it. Uh, but overall, I think it's to me, I've paired my setup down. So I have a, I have like a Manly Ref C mic and I have a C12. I have a couple of like really nice high end mics. I think that's all you need. 
And even these days, yeah. I think all you need is a, is an SM7B and an Apollo Twin and your Post Malone. And that's how he, he, he did all his vocals with a with an Apollo Twin. And uh, I mean, I think he had a Sony uh, C8000 or something, but but they just used the stock pre's on the, the Twin, which is crazy. So I think the technology has yeah. matured so much uh, with converters. I love what Subpack is doing. I think it's really cool to okay. see Phineas playing live, playing bass with it as a backpack and, yeah. you know, having that more tactile touch. So I think that's a really interesting component in the studio for feeling your, you know, where to high pass things. And, you know, if your side chaining is working right and if the lows are conflicting, you can feel it sort of rubbing, whereas you'd have to crank yeah. your monitors to really get that. So, you know, it's something that might, might be seen as a gimmick, but is actually very useful in studio. Um, I love it for just double checking tracks. Uh, you know, it's, you know, with good headphones, and I have several sub packs strung together with headphones with that, it sounds better than a $10,000 speaker set up in the studio. Yeah. yeah. And a good converter that you got to have that. So, yeah. uh, I do love, I love some of the stuff that ALO audio is doing. They, it's more hi-fi consumer hi-fi stuff, but they make these amazing headphone amps that really make a big difference. Uh, this is cool stuff like Apogee, the Apogee Groove is, a, it's a nice little, dongle that can do a 192k and you definitely hit diminishing returns with with those kind of resolutions but but just yeah. having a good that little extra punch of a good converter uh especially one that you can velcro to the back of your macbook pro yeah those can make a big difference uh what else is good i like the push two uh i'm a big ableton okay. guy so i love i think the updates they made for color coding your plugins are game changers. Uh, I love like how the Max devices are much simpler, more reliable. Like the LFO and the Shaper are incredible. Yeah, yeah, and just uh, what else? I, I think it's exciting tech-wise. What's going to be happening in the DJ world as well? I think uh, you yeah. know, storing songs offline, subscription-based DJ lockers are really interesting. I think it'll take a while for that mm -hmm. to get going, but. I think that's really exciting instead of it's very clunky right now to getting the files and they've got the artwork from some janky record pool and they're, they're encoded <laughs> in some weird way and they're not, yeah. they're not tagged. Right. So there's some cool projects I'm working on. I'm, I'm trying to help pioneer with some of their Kuvo projects they're doing where artists will actually be compensated for having the music played in nightclubs and festivals. Cause right now it's, oh, cool. it's kind of a black hole. Everything goes into this yeah. black box and most people don't report what they play. So I think that's a really exciting area. So you're seeing music being consumed uh, in a more transparent way. And there's all these new ways music can be experienced. So I think you're going to see more prosumer DJ things happening where people are buying this mobile controller and just DJing for fun at home. And then that can create royalties for artists. You're seeing people enjoying music in Peloton classes. Um, yeah. You know, during exercise, there's all these different ways that music is sort of infusing people's lives. Uh, and hopefully, you know, they'll figure out, maybe they'll make a Shazam-like app for for Kuvo, for Pioneer, and, and that'll mm -hmm. accurately track what's being played in the clubs. But, but right now, it's this really weird thing where everyone's trying to protect what they play. And like, I think DJs don't understand that if they play their own music, they're going to see royalties, performance royalties. But yeah. Um, and hopefully eventually someday you'll see a real, um, pulse of what's being played in real time at clubs. That's, that's the goal with all that is just the data alone yeah. is amazing. If you can see what is being played the most in each region in real time at which club, um, you know, DJs can anonymize their, their playlist exports so that they don't want, people don't have to see if they're playing a similar set each night. But yeah. if you can see that data in real time, uh, it would be so useful for making music, for seeing how your records are doing. Uh, it could mm -hmm. change the whole process, but it's a big step. So a related question that I had about that, that I really want to ask you, because I feel like you'll have a lot more insight than I do. About a month and a half ago, somebody asked me a question talking about how it's harder than ever to make it in the music industry. And it was just like a quick email, but really got me thinking about it because I don't at least in my perspective, think it's necessarily harder to make it than it used to be five, 10 years ago. But I think the framing of the industry is completely different. Certain things are easier and certain things are harder. Kind of talk about what your response would be to that question if somebody said, hey, Morgan, it's harder than ever to make it in the industry, at least in terms of the electronic music industry. Yeah, it's definitely a mixed bag. Uh, 
I think, you know, when I got started, a lot happened with the climate being good for music, good for dance music. And it was, you know, timing is key. Uh, I think, I think right now it's really hard to play the radio game. Like if you want a song on the radio, that's really tough, but I don't think it's the right goal. I think what's hard and what's easy is a matter of how you structure your goals and how you, how you carve your lane. Um, You know, if you're bass nectar, you're selling out 10,000, 20,000 cap stadiums, you don't care about radio. Uh, and radio yeah. would be a waste of money and wouldn't feel right for him. Uh, and Skrillex doesn't need radio, even though he's had a lot of you know great success with the Bieber records and those co-writes with, yeah. with Pooh Bear. Uh, so I think if you want to be successful, you got to define your goals. And I don't think good goals are like get a Grammy or sell a million records. Those aren't really good goals. Like I, I think they need to be a little more personal and a little less. Um, about achievement. So I think yeah. I, I love the thousand fan model, the Kevin Kelly thousand fan model where you just super serve those thousand fans start there. Don't try to aim for world domination first. Um, start, start locally, start building your core fans, make, do what you love. And, and if it spreads, you know, you build on that and you're, you evolve your sound. But um, I think it is harder these days. If you're just trying to, self-release something it's not as simple as just throw it on um you know a just independent distribution site and you know have a great song it can be the best song in the world but if you don't have a story that's built up for the record radio always wants to hear a story it's still important even if it's not radio the the playlist gatekeepers at spotify they want to hear a story too they want to see it build up in the, the minor league playlist before it hits mint uh, so you've got to build a track record because they don't want to waste inventory. So even in with this unlimited shelf space that's out there with 40,000 songs mm-hmm. a day going up, there is still – scarcity is still an important part of it. Uh, so I think yeah. it's great because you have the algorithm driving things. You have uh, playlist curation driving things. But it's not – the playlist curation everyone complains about, but it's not necessarily a silver bullet to getting tons of plays. Uh, it Yeah. Kind of in that space, I like to call Spotify like the friendly gatekeepers. Right. Like there's still gatekeepers. Like there's always been the music industry. They're just a bit nicer than normal, but they still can put their foot down if they don't want you there. Yeah. It doesn't take much for them to to ghost you and just be like, well, if you if you piss them off, if you <laughs> if you piss Austin off, yeah. uh, he's an awesome guy. <laughs> it's funny too. He could be your best friend in the world, but they've got to do their job and represent music well. And yeah. Uh, so I think it is interesting. I think algorithms will help with with the scarcity issue and, and sort of helping people discover other songs, but will that volume add up? I think when you add in China and India and eventually Africa, getting more broadband internet, you're going to have more consumption. And then, but it's a matter of how do those people find you? Um, And it is interesting that these, these worlds of Spotify, these charts, they live in different worlds. They occupy different spaces. So just because it's doing great on Spotify doesn't mean it's going to kill at radio or doesn't mean you're going to sell tickets live. Um, so yeah. you've got to assemble these jigsaw pieces and they're not necessarily linked to each other. They all can drive each other, but not by default. So, you know, yeah. there's artists I've heard of that have hundreds of millions of plays and they can't sell a hard ticket to save their life. Yep. Uh, which is insane to me. And that, that means it's probably more passive listening and there isn't a brand that people can engage with or they haven't really built a touring market. They didn't start anywhere. They're just, they're staying in their bedroom making, you know, chill out tracks or something. But it it's really important to look at all these pieces and see how they interact with each other. And it's still something I think everyone is trying to figure out. Yeah. So kind of moving back more into production, do you feel like you have a general workflow that you use in the studio? I know I've come across you using templates before in the studio. I'm curious what your workflow looks like, at least at this point. Yeah, definitely templates. Uh, I use those for my draft today process where I'm trying to do one or two concepts a day where it's beat, chord progression, lead, baseline, melody, typically in that order. Uh, everything's color-coded in the templates. So groups are color-coded. Plugins are in a a saved default state. So they have a starting point. So like my compressor's already high passing at 200 Hertz and, you know, avoiding the lows, uh, and yeah. my mastering chains in there. Um, but keeping it flexible, I think if you overdo 
the macros and you overdo setting up all the knobs and everything, you can, you can box yourself into a corner and then you can't yeah. make those changes on the individual plugins. So I like to think of it like, um, almost like a graph paper. Like you have a suggested trace of an outline you could follow mm. if you want to, but it's, it's not a complete blank canvas. So enough yeah. flexibility to move quickly. Uh, and then just putting just enough of a default state into the plugins where, you know, I've got the general attack and release and threshold ratio and, uh, everything is so important on your, your gain structure. Um, yeah. and it, it, I think a lot of people will create more work for themselves by driving stuff hard into plugins and then it's distorting and clipping in four or five different stages and it, it yeah. creates down, down flow downstream. You're going to create just, it's going to take more time to get rid of those sonic problems in the mix. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's a big part of the workflow. Um, and then, you know, saving, saving audio racks and Ableton is really important, but I think generally also just looking at it in a non-technical way, I love to pick parts of the day that are most effective. Uh, I think your body just, if yeah. you're following the circadian rhythm of what your body's doing during the day, it's morning and night, and then there's a black hole in the yeah. afternoon and you don't always have the luxury of choosing to not work in the afternoon, but just things move slower. That's better time for emails, more administrative tasks. Uh, and your your logic brain is wide awake, noon to four, something like that. So it's it's not the yeah. best time for me creatively. And I think what a lot of people do is they fool themselves into thinking they need to do a 12-hour day or more. And they're probably undoing some work. And you really only need yeah. three or four really pure flow state hours to get shit done and, and make a real song. Uh, hmm. And then after that, you could be taking some steps backwards uh, or hearing it too many times, which is a really big issue. Is there anything that you do at this point in time to kind of optimize those three to four hour flow states, especially given the fact that you do have a family and a child? I think you got to, you got to chunk out those hours. Um, I think it is little things like lighting are really important, like kind of darken the studio. Yeah. Um, make sure that you're doing things like morning pages to clear out the cobwebs in your mind. So critical. ultimately stuff that's sitting around in the subconscious is going to clog things up and you got to do some housekeeping in that area. Um, I like to have a lot of the plumbing sort of at a time so that there's no dead batteries and guitar pedals. There's uh, my instruments are in tune. The cables are color coded. Um, there's no weird drives plugged in that are causing errors. Nothing's crashing. Yeah. Uh, everything's authorized. There's all that. There's a lot of tech troubleshooting and maintenance you got to do these days. So, um, mm. For me, if you get all that stuff done ahead of time, you're going to have a much more fluid state of, of the creative process. Yeah. And I think that fits perfectly into more of those like afternoon downtimes for you. Or if somebody works a nine to five, if you get home and you're tired, that's the perfect time to make sure that your plugins are up to date and you've got, you didn't forget to use your splice credits and all that good stuff. Yeah. Cause, and I think if you don't do that, you're going to be jumping around and you're going to get into this weird state of going a mile, what is it, uh, an inch deep and a mile wide. You know, you're not going to yeah. get stuff done. Like the real key to getting things done is just focus on one thing a day. I mean, that's the funniest. <laughs> it's honestly the best advice I've heard is yeah. like, like, don't make a to-do list of like, maybe do a brain dump of a to-do list, to-do list. I do that every day, but then throw that out and just take an index card. You can't fit that many items on an index card and write down, what do you yeah. want to do that day? And you really, maybe you'll do three, but you're going to do one big thing. And that's a good day. Yeah. For myself, I've got very high expectations when it comes to music. And I have maybe five or six things that I want to do every day with music, but I've got one overarching question, which is, did I do something today to help myself in my career with music? And if I can simplify it to that, at least I did something, I feel a lot better versus being like, oh, I forgot to practice guitar, even though I practiced like my voice and piano and all these other things. So simplifying it into just one big picture thing is critical to make sure that you're staying motivated and you're not getting depressed because you're not checking every little thing off the list, getting distracted. Yeah. Cause you don't want to feel like you're just tinkering each day and chipping yeah. away. You shouldn't be chipping. No, no chipping, <laughs> just get shit done and, and work fast. Uh, yeah. So I want to go back to what you mentioned earlier is your one draft a day. Kind of talk mm -hmm. about what that is for you. It's, it's used a variety of ways. Um, you know, it's sort of speed writing. So I'm getting a very basic beat down. Sometimes I'm just recording to the metronome click, but it's structuring chord voicings 
leads, bass lines, getting sort of something inspiring that I can play for a vocalist and have them sing a top line on. Um, yeah. Cause it can work so many different ways. You know, sometimes I'll get a, a top line demo from somebody and it's a lead vocal and just block piano chords, which is cool. Yeah. And then it's up to me to remix that essentially and make that a uh, flesh out the framework of an original. Uh, so it can work in those two ways. It can be a vocalist is here in the studio and I'm playing chords on the fly yeah. It's a little, bit, little more nerve wracking. I've done sessions like that. And we've had great results, but it's scary to go into a session and be like, what do you want to do today? Like, what are you yeah. feeling? And it's, uh, I'd like to come in with the spark of something else. Um, you know, I've talked to guys like Pooh Bear that they come in with title lists. They already have little key phrases. He's probably got a couple hundred titles in his phone and he just goes through and goes, mm, mm, mm. and oh, this yeah. is a starting point and it's a spark for the song. And uh, for me, those listening, Pooh Bear wrote yeah. all of just writes a lot of Justin Bieber stuff yeah. for context. Yeah. And a lot of Skrillex collabs. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, it's, I get inspired by chords, chord voicings, or just, just playing, you know, Wurlitzer, playing piano, uh, play, maybe the Rickenbacker bass from Native Instruments. I know Elenium loves that. Like yeah. those little, starting with one focus instrument and writing on that preferably something that can have some rhythm on it. That's why guitar is so good because you get those dynamics immediately. But I start with yeah. chord voicings, kind of figure out a general groove because if it's just a block piano or pad, um, it's not going to move enough. It's got to be a little more syncopated. Yeah. But I don't want the drafts to be so swingy and so triplety that it's hard for vocals to sing on it. I think doing a draft in triplets is probably a terrible idea for a vocalist, but <laughs> like it really boxes somebody into a corner because then they have to like rap over it. So it's like, yeah, it depends what you're doing. But for me, I like to, the important thing with the drafts that I've learned after doing 400, 500 drafts is you've got to start with something that feels unique and durable and inspiring, but then you've got to typically mute the lead or then, or to filter the highs out so that the vocalist can kind of hear themselves. So you got to have it be simple so they can hear yeah. the own, their muse telling them what melody to sing. And yeah. then also sonically, they don't want to be masking that. So just give them a duller demo and they can sing over it. They'll get the feel for it. I think that's a crucial part for people that are starting to work with vocalists. Even if you have the full instrumental done, if you're sending it to them, present it in a way that optimizes their freedom and creativity to write a good top line. And like you said, mute the vocal or excuse me, mute the, mute the lead melody. If you do have one so that you're not boxing them into something very particular, like for example, um, going back to Pooh Bear, I know that he just likes writing with like piano and strings. He likes it stripped back so that he's not being boxed in and then they'll produce around that. It is funny because I can't really think of any vocalist that would be like, Hey, I really appreciate the lead you put in there that took up all that space. Yeah. <laughs> like that really helped me that, that lead that, that took a, that was playing the entire time of the chord progression. So <laughs> I don't think there's any scenario where that would be helpful unless you're, Oh, there is an example though. If you're, if you sung the top line, like you know, you're Calvin Harris and you sing the guide vocal yeah. and you, you're, you want them to shoot for that and you're very specific, but I like to see what they come up with on their own. And then I'll sing suggestions later on to them and auto tune yeah. the shit out of it. <laughs> So we've talked a lot about kind of some of your previous releases today. I want to talk about your latest release, Footprints, which you dropped um, maybe about a month ago. Talk a bit about how that came to be and maybe some of the production behind it. Yeah. So I had heard about the singer Haley Ann and I, I reminded me the song that she did. It was like a, they did a rework of an Adam K breathe track, Adam K and yeah. Soha. And it was kind of this mashup rework and it was very much bringing back those 2008 early days of Cascade and Dead Mouse and Longest Road. And I, I felt very nostalgic hearing it. And I thought it just has this ethereal vibe to it that I love. And I love the way, you know, she works with the, her, uh, I think it's her boyfriend or her husband who does the, Matt Steeper knows how to really engineer vocals and oh, layer yeah. them in a really nice way. He's really good at that. Uh, and they, they sound like just one physical thing playing at once. It doesn't sound like a stack of vocals. It just sounds like this ch- this wall of vocals that I love. So he did a really good job with that. They, She said to me, well, if you like that, I have something in mind that might be up your alley. And it's different from the trance stuff she does with Andrew Rael and, and Armin. Mm-hmm. And I think that stuff's cool, but I like I wanted to do like a throwback progressive house thing that, that yeah. was channeling some of that 2008, 2009 vibes. 
Um, and that was a fun time in music because before that it was all about minimal. It was all about like dub fire and yeah. tool room. And it was like, it was super minimal and dark and everything is very cyclical and comes in waves. But, um, when that's a big part of Dead Mouse's success is he brought that he he used some minimalism with the chord stabs, but having the bass line and the chord stabs and the entire rhythm be the chords. Yeah. And having like one tiny little center hi-hat propping it up. But he brought melody back into dance music. And then I think, you know, Avicii eventually took the torch and really added melody and, and Swedish House Mafia. Yeah. But um, but I love that period of dance music. That's awesome. So to wrap things up, talk about what's going to be kind of coming up for you in the next zero to six months. Yeah. Next is just, you know, it's more of the, more just cranking out originals that I love. Uh, lots of collaborations, yeah. some stuff that might even touch in country a little bit, not like cool. pure country, but just a little more twang to some of the vocals. Yeah. Um, it's also a little more pop stuff coming out. There's some bilingual projects I'm doing. So there's like one Spanish track that I think is really interesting. Sweet. And just messing around with things that people that people wouldn't expect from the brand, and I think that's a real balancing act. You know, when to use an alias, when not to. I have a yeah. a very distinct side project that is all underground tech house stuff, and I might be unveiling that soon. So that's a whole project. I'm still defining that sound. Yeah, but it's like no chords. It's just bassline and cool tribal percussion, and I've been road testing those tracks. So. Because people have a certain expectation with your name, what it's going to sound like, what that experience is going to be like. So it's hard. You can't stray too far with your own name. Yeah. But I try to push the the comfort zone. But just lots of new music. And I would love to do more with quick tips and maybe do a full 64-card deck, maybe turn that into a book. Yeah. That might be the next thing. Um, and hopefully more. I've been getting more requests for doing uh, guest lectures at schools, at awesome. some, some big some big universities. So you know, going out into the world before playing my show, doing a guest lecture, and kind of making it a very full day of giving back and then playing dance music at night. Love that. All right. Well, yeah. with that, we'll wrap things up for this episode. You can find Morgan Page's music in the description of this podcast. So definitely go give that a listen as this is just about over. Morgan, it's been great chatting with you and appreciate you being on the show, man. Yeah, thanks for having me.